screen, there's an opportunity for children ages four through sixth grade uh, to participate in a very specialized service in our children's church. And uh, parents, we want you to know they're well cared for there, and the lesson is prepared just for them on their age level, but you are also welcome to remain here with them or have them remain here with you in this service as well. So it's just a, another option that we hope you will feel free to take advantage of. I want to extend a warm welcome to those of you who are visiting with us today. It's great to have all of you here. And I've met several of you who are here for the first time. And some have come as a result of one of those door hangers, one of those, what did he say, 15,000, 17,000, whatever it was, that have been passed out. So thank you. You've honored us for being here today. Others of you have seen some of the signs around and wondered what's going on oh, going on over there at Gospel Hope, and this will give you a little, a little taste of it. There's more even in addition to what's happening on Sundays, but we're so thankful that you're here today. And of course, to the plant campers, thank you. Now, a word of explanation to those of you who say, plant camp, this is a horticultural thing? What, what's going on there? Now, that's, that's actually an abbreviation for church planting camp, and it's a very unique summer program. It's a week-long, kind of a full immersion uh, program for students primarily, but a number of adults have come as well uh, just to receive some instruction through preaching and teaching and then just hands-on experiences, being in a community and serving together with our church family uh, to spread the word, not just about the church, but more importantly, about Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's done. And it's been a great week, and this is the second of two weeks that our church has been blessed to host Plant Camp. So that's a little word of explanation. I also wanted to pause in another important uh, moment in the history of this church, because although there's a new name on the sign out front, this church has actually been in existence for right at 30 years. And it was planted and started as Trinity Baptist Church a number of years ago under the leadership of Pastor Lloyd Larkin and his wife, Marty. And they are actually longtime residents of Utah and were recently recognized by their sending mission board, Baptist Mid-Missions, for 50 years of faithful service. And all of that has been invested right here in Utah. And I, I just want to acknowledge that. They, they flew back to Ohio, the, where the mission board is headquartered, and uh, somebody sent me a copy of the certificate of recognition, uh, but they were uh, honored and awarded this recognition in acknowledgement of the faithful, consecrated, and devoted service given to the Lord Jesus Christ through Baptist Men Missions, 50 years of associated, association with that, uh, with the ministry of Baptist Men Missions, uh, a whole crew of fellow missionaries there, and a number of members who support that. And uh, I thought it was fitting that we acknowledge that here and even acknowledge their faithfulness through the years. Do you mind just standing for a moment that we might honor you? Uh, give honor to whom honor is due what the Lord says, and we, we so appreciate you all. So if you have not met the Larkins, uh, you should make that opportunity. The the teens and sponsors who've been here with us through the week had a brief opportunity to hear Pastor Larkin share a few things out of his heart earlier in the week, and I know that was a, a great blessing. But um, we're here ultimately because God wanted to establish a church in Riverton, but humanly speaking, uh, this family is, is the human means that God used and how thankful we are for the Larkins. Uh, so 
I know you weren't looking for that at all and embarrassed by it, but sorry. <laughs> you, you deserve a little acknowledgement uh, for that. Would you open your Bibles with me this morning to the Old Testament prophet Isaiah? Isaiah. And if you would please go to chapter 6. The text will be on the screen for you in just a moment. I'd like to read through the first eight verses and just a portion of verse 9. And then we're going to pray again and work our way through this text. Isaiah writes, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two He covered His face, and with two He covered His feet, and with two He flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of Him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. And he said, Go. Let's pray together. Father, there is such a sacred weight to this text before us this morning that it is impossible through human means, whether it be our own wisdom or strength or intellect, to grasp its meaning let alone to communicate it one to another. And so I am praying, not just for the ability to speak with clarity, but praying for you, praying with these to you for your Holy Spirit's power that our minds might be illuminated to understand your truth, that our hearts might be awakened to grasp something of your great glory and that our wills might be brought to that same place that Isaiah was brought, ruined because of our sin, yet cleansed and forgiven because an atonement that we could never work for ourselves has been made on our behalf. And then finally, Lord, positioned for ministry and service 
and deep and intimate relationship with you that would be sustained for six decades of life beyond this moment. Lord God, we need you. We need you. So would you answer our prayers for your presence, for your forgiveness, for your power and cleansing and strength. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Those seven words that open this chapter are very significant. They are significant because they provide historical understanding for how weighty this moment is in the life of Isaiah. When he writes these words, in the year that King Uzziah died, in that very year, international tension was building between the nations in the Middle Eastern region. A rising superpower was knocking on the door of Judah and Israel under the rule of a of a king named Tiglath-Pileser III, Assyria was coming to power and would shortly be, would become more than a nemesis to God's people as they rolled through those nations, conquering and exiling, killing and destroying. In the year that King Uzziah died, national turmoil within the divided kingdom. Remember, Israel and Judah have been separated, each with their own king, to the north, Jeroboam was, as Second Kings records, doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Menahem followed him, doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Judah is coming to the end of a golden era under this king Uzziah. And in the 52 years of Uzziah's reign, Judah had enjoyed significant strength and prosperity. It was a golden era of military might. The scriptures record for us that Uzziah outfitted mighty men of valor, 2,600 as part of an army of 307,500 who could make war with mighty power. During most of his reign, it was a blessed era of spiritual leadership. For the testimony of Second Chronicles is that Uzziah set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper, for God helped him. It's also a season of, of Judah's history where prophets like Jonah and Amos and Hosea were preaching and proclaiming the word of the Lord. But in Uzziah's final 10 years of life and rule, there were two things that tarnished his service from the throne of Judah. The first is this, the high places were not taken away. So there was this integration of idolatry into the worship of the one true God. And the second is a profound moment in, in Uzziah's life where his pride led him into a path that would ultimately destroy him. In 2 Chronicles 26, verses 16 through 21, you read that account that says, When Uzziah was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. But Azariah, the priest, went in after him with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor, and they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. Then Uzziah was angry 
And now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And when he became angry with the priest, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priests in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him. Behold, he was leprous in his forehead. And they rushed him out quickly. And he himself hurried to go out because the Lord had struck him. And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death, and being a leper lived in a separate house, for he was excluded from the house of the Lord, and Jotham his son was over the king's household, governing the people of the land. And in those final ten years of Uzziah's life, he never regained his health, never recovered from the leprosy, and so lived just as he is described as living, separated, alone, defiled. If you go back to the five books of Moses that begin the Old Testament and you read through Leviticus, you would find these particular instructions given for how a leprous person is to be treated and how he himself is expected to live. Moses wrote, the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Now, in the year that King Uzziah died, this is his state. And we might actually say in the year that King Uzziah died, there has developed a crisis of sovereignty in the land. What kind of king is this? Struggling with a disease that's not only disabling, but isolating. 52 years of royal rule marred by his pride. The first 42 years of prosperity and power now brought into the shambles by his ambition for what God had not ordained. He is spiritually defiled by his pride, and that has effectively removed him from the house of God and separated him from his throne. He is physically defiled by leprosy that isolates him from family and friends and even those he is called to serve. And Uzziah passed his final days spiritually unclean, personally isolated, and royally ineffective. Clothes tattered, hair neglected, lips perpetually covered as he cries day after day after day. I'm unclean, I'm unclean, I'm unclean. So the year that King Uzziah died is but the final step of a decade of downward decline. Uzziah's leprosy is a metaphor for the state of the nation who has become corrupted by their idolatry and their faithlessness to the one true God. Now just thinking about that scenario for a moment from the political side, I didn't even mention the economic impact of some of this, to the spiritual side. Does that sound familiar? Do we not live in a nation, and it's just one of many nations who really are in crisis at the moment. Is there not a crisis of, of leadership? Who do you trust these days? Who can be counted on to rule or legislate with wisdom and integrity, with honesty and truth? It's not found in this country and it's not found in any other nations of the earth at this moment. 
Where do you find the true worship of the one living God? Now, this is a a little hopeful point, but so much of it is skewed and distorted, and some people just reject it altogether. So while there are gatherings just like this all around the world today where the true God is being worshipped, it it does not characterize the majority of people on planet Earth, does it? So this is the the culture in which Isaiah is living. And apparently he was fairly young at this point because history tells us that he would actually prophesy as one of God's chosen prophets. This is the moment of his call, but another 60 years beyond this. So maybe he's 20-ish. We're not exactly sure at this point, but a fairly young man. Now the question for each of us though is what will sustain our faith in these difficult days? And what sustained Isaiah's faith through his difficult years of ministry that were coming? What will feed your soul if God positions you to labor in his service for another six decades? I mean, what's going to allow you to keep your sanity when you read the headlines or you watch the news reports or some of the special hearings and you just think to yourself, we have lost our minds. How do you keep your wits when the, when the next mass shooting takes place and, and some say we need more gun control and some say we need more you know, psychological care and diagnosis and certainly there were telltale signs that we should have gotten. And, and, and while we're crying over all those things, we realize you really can't stop that kind of madness. Because it's a soul problem. And you never know who might be seated here today who has a deep soul problem. And we feel our vulnerability. And we know it is a a fragile moment in history. And and we feel this desperation. And I submit to you the same thing that, that Isaiah is about to experience and the same thing that sustained him for 60 years of prophetic ministry that by and large was unsuccessful in a human way is the only thing that will sustain you and me in our years that are to come. Now go back to verse 1 with me. Because after putting this in its context, the year that King Uzziah died, there is a powerful vision of God that begins to unfold for us. And I want you to see, first of all, that Isaiah sees the majestic weight of God's glory. He says simply, I saw the Lord. And he uses a term for God that has specific reference to God's sovereignty. It acknowledges him as the master. It's the Hebrew term Adonai. It's one of Many titles and names that God reveals to us. And the glory of Adonai's dominion is displayed visibly to Isaiah. Here he is, first of all, sitting upon his throne, actively reigning, occupying the place that you would expect any sovereign or supreme king and judge to occupy. And notice next of all that the glory of Adonai's exaltation is evident as he is high and lifted up. This king before Isaiah, this king who is revealing himself in this vision, is not isolated in a house at the edge of the capital city or some marginalized place at the edge of the universe, but he is seated on heaven's throne, the very center of the universe, and there he sits in sovereign power, unrivaled, unchallenged, unparalleled, and unsurpassed. And the glory of Adonai's eminence is equaled 
is unequaled as the next phrase tells us, the train of his robe fills the temple. These are not the tattered clothes of a leprous king in failing health and declining strength. These are the royal robes of heaven's glory, filling the palace so that in one sense there is no room left for anyone else to stand in the court. We might have hoped that Isaiah would describe for us the radiance of the king's face or the flash of his eyes, but so pervasive and overpowering is the glory of this king that Isaiah apparently cannot lift his gaze above the hem of the royal robes. That's what occupies his vision. The glory of Adonai's attendants reflect his greatness for around him. I actually think that's a better translation, more specific. Around him stand the seraphim. That's a term that simply means the burning ones. These are mysterious creatures. We don't really know beyond the the few words used to describe them here. I mean, how tall are they? How big are they? Are they angels like we typically think of angels? Are they creatures of of a whole another kind? Well, the name burning ones gives us some sense that they, even in, in their presence, are a reflection of the burning glory of God himself. And beautifully, these powerful and mysterious creatures not only reflect the burning glory of Adonai, but there they stand, ever ready to serve. And notice how Isaiah describes them, each with six wings. And those wings are are clearly symbolic of truth. They testify, first of all, to reverence, for with two, they cover their faces. Though there is no sin or impurity in these creatures that we would be aware of in comparison to the great one who is seated on the throne before them, they know that they are infinitely inferior. And so in reverence, they cover their faces. The second set of wings describe their humility. With two, they cover their feet. And the third set of wings speak of their ready service for they use those wings to fly. Strange and wonderful. And this is what is filling the eyesight of Isaiah as he sees Adonai in his glory. But he's not only seeing things, he's hearing things as he's been brought into the throne room of heaven. Notice verse 3 with me, please. For Isaiah hears the eternal witness to God's holiness. One seraphim called to the other. So there's an antiphonal cry. It's like a choir on either side. And and here is the refrain that they repeat over and over. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And this word holy begins to communicate to all who hear it that God is absolutely separate from his creation. He's of an entirely different kind than what we are. In the Old Testament, things that have been dedicated to God enter the sphere of the holy. And some of them are initially very common or ordinary things. There may be produce from the land that when it's consecrated to God, it moves into the category of holy. That is, this this produce, this fruit, this grain, whatever it might be, is now separate from all the others. And so it is referred to as holy unto the Lord. Sometimes there's personal property that is given. Sometimes the spoils obtained in a military conflict as recorded in the book of Joshua. The sacrifices of Old Testament Israel were to be eaten only by the priests and they were dominated or denominated holy by virtue of their dedication to the sphere of the sacred. 
The Sabbath was a day distinct from the other six, and it was called the Holy Sabbath. Separate, unique, a different kind of day altogether. And the inner room of the earthly temple where God dwelt and made his appearance is called the Holy of Holies. But all of these things are merely reflections of the nature and character of God. And these seraphim now cry in triadic repetition. That's how Hebrew writers and speakers would emphasize something. We put it in bold font or underline it or highlight it, right? They would repeat it. And that's why you don't actually find too many things repeated, not in triplet in the scriptures, but here, holy, holy, holy emphasizes this particular attribute of God. God's holiness is his distinction from all other things, but in particular, in this context, we may say that God's holiness is his distinction from the corrupting pride of King Uzziah. It's his distinction from the corrupting pride of of presidents like our own and dictators who rule around the world on this day from legislators and powerful CEOs and all those who ignore God and exalt themselves to places of power. God's holiness is his separation from the corruption of character and morals of people groups like Judah in that day who continue to worship idols and set up false ways of religion. It's his distinction and separation from morals from the, from the morals of people just like us, where in our communities there is story after story and event after event that demonstrates we too are corrupted. We are unfaithful. And God's holiness is his existence in a ruling class all of his own, and that holiness compels the burning ones of heaven's courts to cry night and day, holy, holy, Holy is the Lord of hosts. There is no other being like God in all the universe. And that brings us to the next title. For Isaiah records that they not only speak of his holiness, but they say, is the Lord of hosts. And now it's a different term than Adonai. The burning ones use what we sometimes call his ineffable name only belongs to God, the name Yahweh or Jehovah, as we sometimes say in English. It speaks of God as the great I am, the self-existent one. He doesn't need anything from you or me to continue in his perfection. But here he is described as Yahweh of hosts, the heavenly hosts, the hosts that populate planet earth. He's God over it all. And they worship Him in His exclusive and absolute identity as the one true God. You know, later in Isaiah's prophecy, God Himself will speak again, and Isaiah records the words, God says, before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. You must not think of God as just one deity that exists in a great pantheon of gods. Or as if somehow he rose to the top of the heap of all gods. He's the only one. And in perpetual antiphonal testimony, these burning ones bear witness to this truth. And then they say, look at the text again, the whole earth is full of his glory. Now this is particularly good news for servants of God who, like Isaiah, are struggling to understand their day and endure what's really hard and confusing. 
And see, what typically captivates our vision is probably what was captivating Isaiah's vision in his day. The king that he sees day in and day out, as it were, is a king who's leprous and been marginalized. He's watching the nation that he loves spiral downward. And even under that executive rule of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, in those 10 years where Uzziah can't really occupy the throne, but Jotham is there. I mean, there are a few things that are good, but there are a lot of other things that are very troubling. And so Isaiah, no doubt, was, was struggling with the kinds of things that you and I are struggling with. What is going to be the future of this country? What will the economy do? What will the military power that's threatening us next door under tiglath Pileser? I mean, is that a real threat to us? We have, we have the same set of concerns, but what these burning ones testified to is that the whole earth is filled not with the crisis that tends to occupy our attention. The whole earth, if you open your eyes to it, is full of the glory of God. Full of it. It's everywhere. We see His glory even in our own valley, don't we? You say, where? Oh, drive up into the canyons. There's massive geological formations, the change of seasons, the animal life, the plant life that's there. It all bears testimony to the glory of, it, of our Creator. The trout streams of the Uintas, the majestic formations of Zion and Bryce, Moab, the arches. It's shouting at you. There's a God who rules from heaven, who spoke all of this into existence. He's glorious. He's bigger, he's greater, he's more powerful, and he's gooder, if I can put it that way, than any other power in the universe, let alone on planet Earth. His glory is visible in hospital rooms where the first cry of a newborn baby just breaks that sweet silence and wonder. His, his glory is visible as you gaze through a microscope and, and you look at the helix of DNA and say, where did this come from? And I'll tell you, it's not random chance that God who rules from this very throne spoke those things by His wisdom into existence. The whole earth is full of His glory, whether macro or micro. And Isaiah is coming under the power of this eternal witness to the weight of God's holiness. He has seen it. He has heard testimony to it. And now look at verse 4. He feels the power of God's presence. For the foundations of the thresholds shake at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. This is the moment where it's just complete sensory overload. I mean, this is like the climactic moment where Isaiah is probably saying to himself, I can't take any more. And the smoke and rumbling, it's reminiscent of God meeting His people on Mount Sinai. It is similar to His appearance in the tabernacle as it was finished or Solomon's temple when it was dedicated. It's the visible sign that God Almighty is in His temple, seated on His throne, exercising His dominion over all, and we must acknowledge Him. But look at verse 5. Because now, out of this great vision of this glorious, holy God, there comes a personal confession before the Sovereign One, and Isaiah is compelled by the holiness of God to despair. Woe is me. That's actually an impassioned expression of grief and despair. You could also understand in this way, Isaiah is just saying, I am, I am destined for destruction. I'm cursed because of how great he is and the condition I'm presently in. 
This is not grief and despair triggered by the thought of Uzziah's death or the pride of that king or the decline of the kingdom. This is a deep grief over Isaiah's personal condition at this moment. His sin is being exposed in the radiance of Adonai's glory. And look at the next phrase, I'm lost. You can understand that with these words, I'm ruined. I'm destroyed. I'm just undone in the presence of this great and holy God. And that moves him to repent. For then Isaiah says, if you look at the next phrase, I am a man of unclean lips. Now you know what's interesting? Is that the term he uses, unclean, it's the same term that Uzziah had been crying for 10 years with reference to his leprosy. Sometimes it's easy to look at other people who've done the really bad stuff and say, well, you know, they are corrupt and unclean. And as long as we measure ourselves against other people, we can always find somebody on planet Earth who's a worse person than we are, right? But at this moment, God has not called Isaiah to compare himself to anyone else. Isaiah stands before the holy God just as he is. No awareness of any other person in the universe, aware only of his great uncleanness. And now he, like Uzziah the leper, covers, begins to cover his mouth and cry, I'm unclean. I'm ruined. And I'm struck by the fact that by that cry, he stands in solidarity with the leprous king. We so often want to distance ourselves, ourselves from bad people, don't we? Well, I'm not like that guy. Well, I'm doing better in parenting than that woman. That, that group of kids, I'm not in the hallways doing the kind of stuff they're doing between classes. We, we try to establish our righteousness and cleanness before God in our, in our minds and hearts. But the reality is we're all just as diseased and leprous, unclean as Isaiah and Uzziah. And then he goes on from there. Look at the next phrase where he not only says, I'm a man of unclean lips, but then he says, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. It's as if Isaiah recognizes that he is not only leprous in a spiritual sense before God, but he, he lives in a colony of lepers. The entire civilization he's a part of ought to tear their clothes as a sign of repentance and neglect their hair and cover their lips while they cry, unclean, unclean. You know, that, that's in one sense would be appropriate for all of us. Have you ever considered what your spiritual leprosy is? Have you ever thought of it in those terms? Sometimes we try to pass it off as a generational thing. Well, you know, I'm descended from, you know, in my case, uh, there's Irish and English and some German in there. So, you know, my struggles with anger, I could say, well, you know, it's just... That's my grandma Cheatham's Irish blood coming through there, right? I 
No, that sinful anger problem of mine is not a DNA issue. It's a spiritual leprosy issue. That lust you battle with, that greed you struggle with, that pride that surfaces again and again, those bad ethics in the workplace where you cut corners and you're willing to step on somebody else to get ahead, all of that falls under the heading of uncleanness before God. And you know, one day we'll all stand before this great king and he will judge us. And he doesn't judge on a curve and he doesn't judge in comparison to others. And as long as you're in the 51% or or 50% who are better than the others, you know, you're okay. What we are will be exposed in the light of his holiness and his glory. And that's why in his kindness he leads so many of us to this place now of saying, I am a leper in his sight and I'm unclean. And we feel a sense of desperation at that moment, but the the reason God would wreck and ruin us is not to leave us in that wrecked and ruined place, but to work something powerful. So Isaiah says, I am unclean. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And what he's becoming aware of at that moment is what you and I must become aware of. There's an infinite distance between this God and us. And the God of the Bible never asks you to close that gap by your obedience. He never asks you to draw near to him by your sincerity and earnestness, by sacrifice and suffering. You know how I know that? In part because of the way this story goes. It's all through the scriptures, but this was just another illustration. Look at what happens next. For here's a man standing in the glory of God, aware that he is a leper, diseased in a way that he cannot heal himself, corrupted within and without, living in a spiritual leper colony, as it were. And now look at verse 6, because something remarkable happens. The Holy One from, sent from God comes to him. The seraphim flew to me. And that's because the Lord of hosts knows that Isaiah will never be able to approach him as he is. So in his mercy, the Lord of hosts dispatches his messenger to meet this man in that leprous condition. And then what happens? Well, the servant, the seraphim, touched my mouth. Oh, what an act of grace. Because that's the particular place of his leprosy, to put it on those terms. I'm a man of unclean lips. That's the central point at which he says, oh, this this is where the spiritual disease is. But that's the very place at which God on high sends his messenger to say, I'm going to touch you and heal you and cleanse you at that very point. What's the point of your spiritual leprosy today? It may be your lips. You may have the most profane mouth in the community. 
It may be full of profane words or it may be profane of gossip or malicious talk. You may be spreading lies and slander. Is it your lips? Is it your heart? The evil imaginations of your heart, the schemes that you hatch, and sure, it's helped you get ahead in the business world, but you look behind you, you look in the rearview mirror of your business career, and it's one trashed relationship after another. And you have steamrolled people and crushed them in order to advance this, to this place. Your leprosy is your work ethic. Maybe your leprosy is just outright covetousness. You just want more stuff, and you, you look across the fence of the neighbor and see that newer RV or that newer vehicle or the addition they put on the house, and you not only want to have something like that, it makes you angry that they've got it, and if you could, you'd go burn it down today. God calls that covetousness. It's a disease that will destroy your soul. It's leprosy. But whatever your point of leprosy is, this God not only is the power, but the willingness to touch you right at that point. Look at the text again and notice what happens. He touched my mouth. Such an act of grace that the burning one dispatched by the Holy One of Israel touches this spiritually leprous, unclean place. And then he says, and, and this is the message from God through his messenger to Isaiah, behold, this has touched your lips. And it's a coal taken from the holy fire of the altar of heaven. And it purifies Isaiah's lips. And God sends the message to him, your guilt is taken away. The guilt which hangs on the prophet like decaying flesh is removed. And then I love this next phrase, your sin atoned for. Wait a second. Nobody's said anything about sin to this point, right? But Isaiah is profoundly aware of it and God knows it. But here God is in his power and in his willingness to come right to Isaiah paralyzed by fear that he might be overwhelmed by his uncleanness and meet him right at that point and remove the real guilt that Isaiah's sin has incurred, just like he removes the real guilt that your sin and mine incurs, and then sanctifies him, atones for that sin. How does God atone for any man's sin? Because Isaiah hasn't done one act of obedience at this point, hasn't offered one, one service of sacrifice to God. Well, I, if I can insert this, and I don't have time to fully develop, but the ultimate atonement that God works for all sinners is through His Son, Jesus Christ. And nobody writes of it with greater clarity and strength in the Old Testament than Isaiah. You just have to read to the end of the book. Glorious passages, though, that tell us God will send His Son, the Messiah, into the world, and He will bear every one of our sins and all the reproach on Himself. He will be God's once-for-all sacrifice, and by His death on the cross, and then by His resurrection, God will atone for our sins. So God doesn't say, Isaiah, serve me for 60 years, and then we'll talk about your forgiveness. Write a great book that I include in my Old Testament, and then we'll talk about your atonement. No, the atonement happens here, by grace, apart from Isaiah's works. And you know, God would remove your guilt and atone for your sins in the same way. You can't offer something in addition to the sacrifice of Christ. Can you improve on that? Absolutely not. Finally, the holy God asks a question. And out of that question comes a response and then a commissioning. And this is the final piece that just astonishes me. Because he's not only taken away Isaiah's guilt and atoned for his sin, and he's cleansed the place of leprosy, his, 
his lips. But now God says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And as an aside, I think this is one of those places where you hear a little Trinitarian language break out. Who will, who will go for us? The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And it's almost pitiful in one sense that this servant of God who's just been overwhelmed and, and even t- almost invoking that curse on himself, saying, woe is me, one moment, now actually says, here am I, send me. I mean, humanly speaking, don't you read that and kind of like, oh, seriously? Oh, but that's the power of God's touch on a formerly leprous person. When you experience that transformational work where he removes your guilt and says, your sin is completely atoned for. We are now in right relationship with this God. And he says, by the way, I'm looking for a volunteer. And when you've experienced that grace or something in it that says, I'll do it. But Isaiah, you're still imperfect. Nothing has changed about your circumstances. Judah is still in this death spiral downward. There's still high places all throughout the land where they worship false gods and pagan forms of religion. Uh, uh, pagan forms of religion. Isaiah, nothing about your circumstance has changed. Why would you offer to go in service to this king? And the answer is because I've seen him as he is. And I think that's the great and often missing factor for us. We don't see God as he is. What mercy it is that the Holy One would employ the formerly unclean one and in a simple response to that sweet volunteer, here I am, send me, God simply says, go. Can I tell you a little bit more about Isaiah? From that point forward, Isaiah wrote one of the greatest books of the Old Testament, 66 chapters that are loaded with prophetic words, many of them specifically telling us about the coming Messiah, the great King, God's unique servant, Jesus the Christ. Out of that 66 books, the New Testament authors who who write the Gospels, who who write letters, who even go and do uh, all kinds of, of missionary work, they quote Isaiah more than any other Old Testament author. And it's not even close. I mean, I I read one source that said Isaiah is quoted two times more than any other group of Old Testament authors together. He preached and prophesied. He chronicled uh, the the rules of, of Judah's kings through that period of time. And ultimately, we know this through history. It's not verified in the scriptures, but there's really strong reason to believe that it is an accurate account that in his old age, under the tyrannical rule of King Manasseh, who was a vile, wicked king and one of the last ones in Judah, he martyred Isaiah, had him sawn in half because he so reviled the message that Isaiah had continued to preach and write. But through all of those 60 years of ministry, through all the uh, through, through all the prophetic word that we, work that would continue, Jesus quotes him, Paul quotes him, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch is reading the book of Isaiah when, when God sends his servant along to help that man be converted in the book of Acts. I, Isaiah just permeates the word of God going forward and it creates this tremendous gospel mission. 
And one of my favorite passages is actually at the end of Romans 15, and it's one that God used in a powerful way in my own life just a few years ago where Paul, and I shared this with the plant campers this past week, Paul has actually been enjoying fruitful ministry from Jerusalem all the way around to what is present-day Albania. He started multiple churches. He's evangelized communities and households and, and neighborhoods. He's been doing a great work, but he has been studying Isaiah, apparently, and he studies Isaiah 52, and he sees some of the promises that God has made to save the nations, and because of what he reads in Isaiah, he says, you know what? I'm going to leave all of this familiar territory and ministry, all the relationships, and I'm going to go to a place where Christ has not yet been preached. And he quotes Isaiah. So when Isaiah raised his hand and said, here am I, send me, he had no idea how God would use him in the days of his life on planet earth, how God would multiply that ministry far beyond his years as he lived them out in the 700s into the 600s BC, what God would do through his prophetic writings, through the preaching ministry of Jesus, through the apostles, those like Paul, and what he would do up to this present day. But that's a powerful example of what God does with individuals who, first of all, say, I'm unclean. God, would you cleanse me and heal me at this very point or the points of my spiritual leprosy? And if, if you would be so pleased, would you commission me to serve you wherever you want, however you want? And it all begins with a vision of God as he is. You and I can't afford to make up stuff about God. We just need to open this book and with Isaiah look and pray and say, God, show me your glory. Would you bow your heads with me, please? I want to give you just a few minutes to pray through this text. And would you just humbly pray before God right now? Will God show me the leprosy of my life? What are the points of uncleanness? Is it your pride like Uzziah? Is it your lust for power? Your lust for pleasure? Is it greed? Is it covetousness? What is it? And as God reveals it to you, will you just humbly say, Lord, I'm unclean? Would you come in that same cleansing power? God, I'm unclean. Would you take away the guilt of my sin? And would you apply the atonement of Jesus Christ to my heart that I might be healed? God, come to me. Come, please, or I'll die. Some of you have known the forgiveness and cleansing and saving of God, but to this point, you've not been willing to serve Him with all that you are. But this is the day where God stands before you and you, you just... You know it in your soul right now that he is speaking to you and saying, Who will, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And he's looking right at you and he just wants to know, are you willing? 
So from your heart right now, will you raise your hand before God and say, here am I. Send me. You don't have to know where He's going to send you, but you just need to be willing. Here am I. Send me. Oh, Father, we're unclean in a thousand ways. In our thoughts, in our words, in our motives, so much leprosy in our souls. Only you have power to cleanse it away and heal it. Spirit of God, would you just move through this assembly in your cleansing, guilt-removing, salvation-giving presence and power. Please. And even for that, that individual right now who says, I, I want to say, here am I, send me, but I'm, I'm fearful of what it might mean. Oh, God, empower that soul with enough faith to believe you and trust you and to take that first step of faith and follow you. Do what you will. Raise up out of this assembly scores and scores of those who, like Isaiah, see you in your glory and eagerly, humbly, faithfully follow you as you say, go. These things we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We want you to just continue to respond as the Lord would so direct, and we're going to have a closing song here in a minute. If you, if you need one of us to pray with you, or if you'd like to have a, another word, just maybe something was confusing to you and you'd like to get some clarification,